I don't read a lot of magazines or newspapers, but I do read a couple of magazines, one of which is World Magazine. I find it helpful to have a Christian perspective on world events and the news. I also enjoy the opinion pieces that appear in that magazine. I find them provocative. This morning, I have one of those opinion pieces I would like to read to you this morning. It was out of the November 7th, 2009 issue. It's entitled, A High Tight Wire. And I think it's, it's a bit shocking, actually, and that's the reason I want to read it to you. I quote, If it's true that we evangelical Christians have a pretty ugly reputation in today's culture, and the newest figures from the Barner Group suggest strongly that such is the case, then it's certainly appropriate to be asking with increasing urgency, whose fault is that? Who's to blame for our bad press? It's not just the pagan outsiders who are skeptical about us. We don't even see ourselves all that positively. Our own children share with unbelievers some of the same questions about what they see as flaws in our character. For example, 91% of non-Christians out there in the 19 to 26 age bracket see us evangelicals as, quote, anti-homosexual, close quote. But 80% of those in the same age bracket who are regular churchgoers have the same perception. An overwhelming 87% of outsiders see us as judgmental. But 52% of church-going young people make the same judgment. Hypocritical? 85% on the outside, 47% on the inside. Old-fashioned, 78% of unbelievers, 36% of those who are regular churchgoers. Too involved in politics, 75% on the outside, 50% on the inside. Out of touch with reality, 72% the outside, 32% inside. Insensitive to others, 70% on the outside, 28% inside the church. Boring, 68% of those outside, 27% of those inside. Not accepting of others' Faiths, 64% on the outside and 39% on the inside. Confusing, 61% outside the church and 44% inside the church. The author, Joel Bells, who wrote this opinion piece, goes on and he says, If you are anything like me, you'll need a little time to sort out all these figures. In some cases, you'll wince and say, how sad, how, how embarrassing. In others, you may actually be cheered a bit and see the numbers as a sign of faithfulness. Because here, the glass is indeed at least partially full and partially empty. Throughout, thoughtful evangelicals need to ponder all such issues while asking themselves seriously and perceptively. What is it that our own clumsiness and klutziness, what is it about our own clumsiness and klutziness that leaves people alienated from the truth that we think should be so attractive? And when is it that the very essence of God's truth drives people away? 
self-serving and self-forgiving creatures that we are, our tendency is not just to overlook, overlook the foolish things we say and do that make the truth of God so repulsive to people, but even to congratulate ourselves on being so faithful. The reason people see me as judgmental, we tend to rationalize, is that I'm so diligent in my pursuit of God's truth. If the world hates you, we like to quote from Jesus himself in John 15, know that it hated me before it hated you. What better company could we have? Some people, including our own kids, see us evangelicals as boring. Well, a friend said to me not so long ago, quote, the Bible never claims that God's truth has to be exciting. Isn't it enough that it's just true? To which I have to say, it might be enough if your God is nothing but a theoretic concept, but if he is in fact the creator and sustainer of everything that exists, you'd better work hard to portray him as exciting as well as true. After all, that's how he portrays himself. So I'm bold to suggest here that our default position should be an assumption that we are the guilty ones. We're too often the ones whose offensive ways have made God's good news seem other than good. Of course we're anti the sin of homosexuality. The Bible couldn't be clearer on that issue. But then we have to examine our hearts and confess we're not very good at holding that perspective while also lovingly sharing God's truth with men and women caught up in such a lifestyle. Yes, there's a profound sense in which God's truth, even when sweetly portrayed, is an offense to many. And that recognition leaves us inching with great care across a very high, tight wire, speaking the truth in love. Sadly, the history of God's people is that we find ourselves constantly falling off, not just one side, but both. We get so carried away with speaking God's truth that we forget the love assignment. Or we get so enamored of loving people, even including our enemies, that we forget the truth assignment. We have a hard, hard time doing both at once. But if my main response to this newest survey from Barna is to congratulate myself on what a good job I've done of portraying the truth of the gospel of Jesus, then just maybe the survey should have checked me out on still another issue. It's called smugness. Smugness. How does the world see us? How does the world see us? We who are committed by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and beginning in verse 43. If you are using a pew Bible, page 962. I see a puzzled look on a few faces, wondering, oh, wait a minute, I thought we were in Romans. We are. We are. But we're going to be beginning this morning in Matthew chapter 5. Actually, where we are is we have arrived at the eighth ingredient in Paul's recipe for love. We have been working our way through Romans chapter 12 and noting there that Paul gives an, a rather exhaustive list of the attitudes and behaviors of those who have been transformed by the amazing gospel that he so deliberately and detailingly portrayed in chapters 1 through 11. And we noted some months ago as we began here in chapter 12 that we could pull all of these characteristics together and, and look at it like a recipe. And so that's what we've been doing. And today we arrive at the eighth ingredient on the list. And that ingredient is kindness. Kindness. 
Gospel-generated Christian love is a kind love. A kind love. And it is going to be very, very challenging for us this morning when we understand who and where we are to express this kind of kindness. Paul is moving now in chapter 12 of Romans from love displayed inside the body of Christ to love displayed outside the body of Christ. That is to the unbelieving world. That is to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our family members, to our friends. Not what love is like among you and I, us Christians, but what does love look like to those who are outside the people of God. I take you here to Matthew chapter 5 because Jesus makes some absolutely shocking statements here in his Sermon on the Mount. Statements that are echoed elsewhere in the New Testament and indeed provide the foundation for what we will be looking at in Romans chapter 12 and verse 14 in a moment. So listen to the words of Jesus beginning in verse 43, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Just stop right there for a minute. You shall love your neighbor, literally you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is given in the law in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What the teachers of Israel had done over the centuries was to say, if we are to love our neighbor, okay, that's the Mosaic law, that's fine, we understand that. But the obvious corollary to that is then that we must hate our our enemies. We must hate our enemies. Jesus is addressing and confronting that particular attitude right here, as we will see. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That should shock you. That kind of a statement should shock you. It certainly shocked its original hearers. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? In order that you may be sons of your heavenly fa- of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers gatherers do the same. But if you greet your brother only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. Wow. This one rips you wide open. Wide open. Jesus, are you sure? Love my enemies? Pray for those who persecute me? I'm struggling with loving my friends. Doing good to those who do good to me. And now you're saying to love those that despise me, that hate me, that are persecuting me, that are seeking my life? That's impossible. I mean, to do that, I would have to be Perfect. Yeah. That's right. You cannot do this. Not in your own strength. Not in your own power. This should lay us low. This should tear our hearts wide open. This kind of standard, based upon the character of God, as Jesus points out here, 
God does this, forces us onto the grace of God, onto the cross of Jesus Christ. Because I cannot do it in my own power and strength, and neither can you. But as we begin here this morning in, beloved, what I think is one of the more difficult sections of certainly this part of Romans chapter 12, we have two choices here. One is we negotiate the Bible so that it's, so that we can fulfill what it says. We weaken the command until we can obey it. Or we let it stand as it says, rip us wide open, and send us fleeing to the cross. To use the illustration of a high jumper, we have two choices here. We set the bar at 18 inches and we stumble over it and congratulate ourselves on what a good job we've done. Or we let the bar stay where it is. We stand back and look at it and we say it cannot be done. Oh God! I read you that earlier opinion piece because I am persuaded that for many of us we have been negotiating the bar downward. And as the world sees us, they're not very impressed. They're not very impressed. Love for our enemies is a defining mark of what it means to be a Christian. Let me repeat that for you. Love for our enemies is a defining mark of what it means to be a Christian. Many, many people are willing to kill for their God, but a Christian is willing to die for theirs. And therein lies a massive difference. Turn to the right over to Romans chapter 12 and verse 14. Page 1136 if you're using a pew Bible. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 12 and verse 14. Where he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. There are three imperatives, three commands in this very short verse. Bless, command number one. Bless, command number two. Curse not, do not curse, command number three. So as we begin to let this verse settle in on our hearts this morning, we are going to find three soul-stretching duties three soul-stretching duties that radically display Christian kindness so that we might rightly relate to those who hate us, so that we might rightly relate to those who hate us. They're here for us very simply, and they lay right on the surface here. Verse 14, the first soul-stretching duty that radically displays Christian kindness is that we must pray graciously. We must pray graciously. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. To bless someone is to speak well of them or to act graciously toward them. The Greek verb translated bless, eulageo, we get the English word eulogize. We eulogize when we speak well of someone. We normally do it at a funeral, don't we? We all stand around and forget all the things that they didn't do well, and we focus on a few that they did and portray them as an amazing saint. We eulogize them. Paul is saying that we are to bless them. We are to eulogize them. We are to speak well of them and to them. 
Paul also couples this in verse 14 with a prohibition against cursing them. Do you see that? The reason he does this is to make it doubly sure that we understand what our responsibility is. It's not a little blessing and a little curse. It is bless them and do not curse them. In context here, what he is saying to us is that we must ask God to bless them or bestow his favor upon them. That's what it means to bless those who persecute you. To ask God to bless them. To ask God to bestow his favor upon them. That is a stunning command. And it is made even more stunning when we understand that it is to those who persecute you. Do you see it in verse 14? This is not just upon run-of-the-mill people. Just those people outside the body of Christ, but they're a nice person. And so, okay, that's not so hard. No, we're to be doing it to those who are persecuting us. Dioko in the Greek, to pursue us, to chase us, to persecute us. To hunt us. To people who are seeking to do harm to us because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Let me take a few minutes and recount for you the history of persecution in the Christian church. There was a time in, in the history of the Christian church when this was very well known among people. But we have become so far removed from reality that most of us do not think about persecution and have little or no awareness of what our, our ancestors went through and suffered because of their faith commitment to Jesus Christ. So let me take just a few minutes here and give you a very quick jet tour of the first four centuries of the church. Jesus predicted that his disciples would be persecuted by the Jewish religious establishment in John chapter 16 and verse 2. And let me read it for you. Jesus said, They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. They will kick you out of the life of Israel and they will seek your life as an offering to God. They will, they will believe that killing you in their zeal is actually worship of God, the stamping out of a horrible heresy. And the book of Acts records exactly that. For the next 30 years, as is laid out in the book of Acts, the believers are persecuted and their persecutors are the Jewish religious authorities. Over and over again, in fact, it's, it's almost laughable in a weird sort of way, I suppose, that the, it is the Jewish authorities that are doing the persecuting and the deliverers and protectors, particularly of the Apostle Paul, are the Romans. It is the Romans who regularly declare, not guilty. I find, no, I find no guilt in this man. And they deliver Paul from the hands of his persecutors. Well, that all changed. That all changed in A.D. 64. When the Roman Emperor Nero had a bit of a political problem on his hands. He was looking to do some urban renewal and he wanted to burn down a portion of the city so he could remodel it. But the fire got away from his agents and it burned down a considerable portion of the city which was made of wood at that time and there was such death and loss of, of, of property that the citizens of Rome were outraged and Nero was in trouble and he found a convenient scapegoat called the Christians. After all, their theology talks about the earth and, the, and the, the world being consumed with fire at the end of the age. And so these pyromaniacs are obviously the ones who tried to bring in their kingdom by burning down our city. And 
the anger of the populace was turned upon the Christians and thus began the first of ten waves of persecution that came across the church over the next couple of hundred years. Ten distinct waves of persecution. For the majority of those early waves of persecution, it was sporadic and it was localized, which meant that you could flee. When the local authorities began their killing rampage, you could flee to another portion of the empire and, and get away from it all. And so, for the first, as I say, a couple of hundred years, that was basically, these waves of persecution came. And don't misunderstand, for those who were caught in its web, it was bloody, it was painful, it was disastrous. But there was the ability to run. But beginning with the reign of the Emperor Decius, who reigned from A.D. 249 to 251, the first empire-wide persecution began. Now there's no place to run. Across the entire Roman Empire, they were seeking out those who were attached to this Christian faith, and they were killing them. There was a considerable level of bloodshed and misery for the followers of Jesus Christ during this persecution. The final and tenth persecution, which was the bloodiest of them all, came under the reign of the Emperor Diocletian. He ruled from 303 to 311. It was the worst, it was the bloodiest, and he made it a particular point to search out the Christian holy books and burn them. Historians are quite persuaded that because of his intentional persecution, not only of the believers, but of the Bible, that we lost many, many early manuscripts and copies of the Word of God during that time. Listen to how the writer... John Fox describes what it was like to live in the persecution under the emperor Diocletian and be reminded this was empire-wide. I quote, Racks, scourges, swords, daggers, crosses, poison, and famine were made use of in various parts to dispatch the Christians. And invention was exhausted to devise tortures against such as had no crime, but thinking differently from the votarities of superstition. In the city of Phrygia, that's in modern Turkey, consisting entirely of Christians, was burnt and all its inhabitants perished in the flames. Tired with the slaughter, at length, several governors of provinces represented to the imperial court the impropriety of such conduct. Hence, many were respited from execution, but though they were not put to death, as much as possible was done to render their lives miserable, many of them having their ears cut off, their noses slit, their right eyes put out, and their limbs rendered useless by dreadful dislocations and their flesh seared in conspicuous places with red-hot irons. It's enough to make you want to throw up. These are what our ancestors suffered. Well, the persecutions ended when Emperor Constantine took the throne. He signed what is called the Edict of Milan in AD 313, and persecution was brought essentially to an end. By the year, and this is fascinating to me, by the year AD 380, the Emperor Theodosius decreed that Christianity was the only legal religion in the empire and began to persecute all who refused to adopt the Christian faith. The persecuted now became the persecutor. In this world today, persecution of the followers of Jesus Christ continues. It is particularly strong and intense in that part of the world 
which we have said that by faith we want to take the gospel to. It's called the 1040 window. It is the very place where we are most hated and we are most likely to suffer and die. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. How is this possible? How is it possible to pray graciously for those who are seeking your life and would do to you the most horrible things if they get their hands on you? It lies first in saying no to the natural and sinful feelings that arise in my heart and yours. No parent ever teaches their child to strike another child, right? When they take your toy, I never taught my children to slap their sibling or friend when their toy was taken from them. And I am positive that as parents, you've never taught yours to do that either. Yet all it takes is a quick trip to the nursery to see that all of those cute little kids are quite capable of slapping their neighbor when they're offended. In fact, if they were bigger, they would probably kill them. Probably would. What begins by saying no to what wells up in our heart. Again, just... Observe here in verse 14 that it is not neutrality that is commanded of us. It is not neutrality. Neutrality is not enough. It is not just suck it up and suffer. It is do not curse them, but bless them. But bless them. We are actually expected to pray for their welfare. And those prayers must not be intermixed with even the slightest desire for divine vengeance. How do we pray graciously for those who are persecuting us? What would those prayers look like? I thought a lot this week about this, and I have pictured in my mind some of the most horrible persecutors of the Christian church and tried to figure out what does that really look like? What is it that I would be asking of God for them? Would I be asking for a long life and prosperity? And, and honestly, I just have to tell you, I, I find that prayer to, to be so offensive. So what I did was I, I searched through the New Testament to look for examples of what was happening then and by people who were righteous people. And, I, and what I want to share with you this morning is just, at least it's this. It may be more, but it's not less than this. So I think to pray graciously for someone who is persecuting us means, number one, to ask God for their salvation. To ask God for their salvation. Let me just read to you very quickly. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Paul writes here, First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge truth. Paul's writing here to Timothy in Ephesus, and he's exhorting him to lead himself and the congregation in prayer for those who are in authority. The persecutors. The persecutors. So what does it mean to pray graciously? I think it at first means to pray for their salvation, to ask God to save them, to pour out his mercy on them, to be gracious to them. Secondly, 
It means to ask God to not hold them accountable for their sin of persecution. To ask God to not hold them accountable for their sin of persecution. When what wells up in our hearts is to cry out for vengeance. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 34, listen to the words of the Master. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what it is they do. Or how about this one? Acts chapter 7 and verse 60. And stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Wow. To the very ones who are snuffing out his life with large rocks. Many commentators back all the way to the ancient days have observed the fulfillment of this prayer in the conversion of Saul, who became Paul, the missionary church planter. How do I pray for those who are persecuting me? I'm called to ask for their salvation. And I'm going to ask God not to attribute this persecution this sin, which could include and probably would include all the way up to my death against them. That is to pray graciously. Graciously. The second soul-stretching duty that is radical for the followers of Jesus Christ is to speak graciously. We must speak graciously. Graciously, We must pray graciously, but it must go beyond that. It must now come out through our lips. We must speak graciously. Jesus' requirement to love our enemies extends to the way we speak to those who are hostile toward us. Mild and soft answers in the face of evil and reviling speech are our duty. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, Peter writes, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. Paul says, To this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty, and are poorly clothed, and are roughly treated, and are homeless, and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Beloved, it's so easy to be drawn into hateful, hurtful, and vindictive speech. When somebody comes at us and is attacking it is so easy to respond in kind. It is so easy to, to begin to attack them. 
When we do that, we undercut the message of grace and forgiveness that we are seeking to proclaim. I'm convinced it's one of the reasons that we have such poor reputations on the outside. Gracious speech, by the way, let me say this, does not ignore the solemn warning about the seriousness of sin and the certainty of judgment. We are not talking about hiding the gospel. We are absolutely called to proclaim the glories of Christ, the reality of sin, the certainty of judgment. But gracious speech refuses to delight in those judgments or succumb to the fleshly desire to retaliate against those who attack us. It rests in the sovereignty of God and His providential rule over our lives. Peter's observation about Christ, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to Him who judges righteously. It is to put ourselves into the hands of God and to understand that this circumstance in our life, as painful and potentially deadly as it might be, is part of the plan of God, and indeed it falls under Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. We must pray graciously. We must think graciously. The first, or the third rather, soul-stretching duty. Gracious speech and gracious Prayer depend upon how we think about those who are persecuting us. It begins in the mind. How do we think? If we do not think in a godly way, then we will not respond in a godly way. So it does begin here. Those who are harassing you, those who are attacking you, God forbid the day that those who are literally and actually persecuting us? Are they our enemies that need to be destroyed? Or are they people made in the image of God and twisted by sin? See, that's the question. Do they need to be destroyed? If, if so, destroy them. Whether it be through political alliances or whether it be through force of arms, whatever it would be, and the churches had problems historically in this area. Or are they people made in the image of God who are bent and twisted by sin and thus in need of redemption? See, it begins there. It begins, how do we think about people? If they are made in the image of God and twisted and bent by sin, then they are just like you and I. They need who? They need Christ. They need Christ. Just be reminded of this, Paul writes. God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Not when we had cleaned up our act, not when we had come over onto God's side, both of which are an impossibility. It is while we were in the midst of our sin in antagonism towards God, His direct enemy, it is at that time that God reached out to us with the gospel. And if we are to follow Him, that's what's called for us. Gracious thinking is the fruit of a transformed mind. Gracious thinking is the fruit of a transformed mind. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The will of God is for us to bless those who are persecuting us. And that is impossible without a transformed mind. And the power to transform the mind lies in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That is the only place it lies. It is impossible to love without grace. And the only avenue of grace is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is only people who are forgiven that can extend grace at the level that is called for here. It is as God works in us that He works out through us to everyone else. We can go out into this community and bang on doors to share the gospel all day long. But the attitude of our heart in how we approach this goes a long way to whether we get a hearing or not. If we delight in the message of judgment, something is wrong. Something's wrong. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless them. Curse them not. Don't close your Bibles up yet. I still have an hour and ten minutes. We're not going to let the state of California take our time away. My watch, by the way, still says, yeah, 10 minutes of 11. (laughs) Just roll back to a few chapters to chapter 5, book of Romans. And it's the gospel, beloved, that, that makes this impossible command possible. As I said, we can't just lower the bar down and say, well, you know, he didn't really mean that. Oh, yes, he did. He did. It's only possible through the gospel. Romans chapter 5, just listen a little bit as I read. Beginning in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts, through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified, that is acquitted, By his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. What is he saying to us? Simply put, it's this. In the midst of our rebellion against our Creator, when we were in slavery to sin, in enmity with God, hostility towards God, rather than snuff us out as our sins deserve, God extended Himself in grace, sent His own Son to die in our place. That all of our guilt of all of our transgression would be transferred to His innocent, beloved Son who would voluntarily go to a cross and be crucified that He might forgive by punishing our transgressions on His Son. 
The fruit of that spectacular display of grace is that we now are justified by faith in the gift of Christ and we are at peace with God. We're at peace with God. And it is the peace of God and with God that enables us to persevere in this life because we now realize that this life is not what it's all about. It is the life to come. It is the life to come. We look forward to the life to come. We're not going to receive the satisfaction that this world lyingly promises anyway and cannot deliver. So rather than attempt to squeeze it out of a broken product, we recognize that the only real satisfaction is the life to come. We exalt in the resurrected Christ in the certainty of His return. Isn't that true? And so when our eyes are lifted up through a heart of faith, then we can begin to live differently than everyone else. We can actually bless those who persecute us. In our own strength, not a chance. But as the life of God flows through us, we will begin to live so differently that we will be a compelling message of Christ. That's what we're talking about. Gentlemen, if you'll join me here. This memorial meal has been given to us by Jesus Christ. Do this in remembrance of me, right? For as often as you drink the cup and eat the bread, you proclaim the Lord Jesus until when? Until He comes. This is a memory stimulus meal. Not those goofy vitamins that everybody wants to sell you, right? Mega memory. This is a mega memory meal. Because when we partake of this by faith, we are being reminded of what Christ has done for us. And I was going to say, I don't know about you, but I do know about you. I know for me, (laughs) I need to be reminded. And I need to be reminded frequently. Frequently. 